Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Mo Cotton Kelly, who serves as, wait for it, Senior Vice President for Stakeholder Engagement and Chief Operating Officer at the University of Connecticut Foundation. Welcome, Mo. Thank you, Brent. Great to be here. Well, it's nice to see you, and I am sure uh, many of our listeners know you or know of you or have heard you speak. You're uh, such a uh, an inspiring leader within the case community specifically, and I think the advancement community more broadly. And so I look forward to getting to know you a little bit better today. Same. Okay. What we want to start with is one of my favorite ga- uh, questions for our guests, which is just better understanding your own college journey. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was mm. that? What was she into? And what led you to Bowling Green State University? Sure. So junior high school Mo was uh, played volleyball. She was taking Latin. She um, Prove sang. It. Prove <laughs> it. I, oh, I can't Latin. speak it anymore. Okay. I mean, all right, all right. We're just them together. We are one. Um, so I can give you that. I can give you the root of a lot of words. Uh, did pretty well on her SATs, and really was really thinking about what she wanted to do. Um, wasn't prolific in any one area, but really kind of just loved people was also doing debate, was doing a whole host of things. Um, Being engaged in athletics was really fun. And uh, the arts and athletics to me were just a gene. Fast forward to my senior year, break my ankle, can't really do the volleyball thing. And then had applied to the University of Michigan and my backup school was Bowling Green. I was hoping to be able to walk on at Michigan and do a whole bunch of things. I lived in Ohio. Out-of-state tuition was a lot, and I had a single mom. So when Michigan was no longer reality, I went down to Bowling Green with my mom, and the minute I stepped on that campus, I was like, I'm home. I'm going to come here. And so I went to Bowling Green. I double majored in journalism and psychology and did everything that I think many of us do. You're a tour guide. You're involved in government. I'm involved in student activities and Loved every second of the four years that I was at Bowling Green. I love that. And I want to know more about it, but I would be so remiss if I didn't modify my standard upfront question, just given how unique your childhood was um, really being on the move. So just tell me a little bit more about the 13 schools you attended prior to making that collegiate decision. Yes. Uh, So I'm an Air Force brat. My father was military. Our family moved around a lot. Um, I went to 13 schools before I graduated from high school. Um, And ironically, my high school was the longest tenured school I was at for those four years. Um, And so I think part of that was, I think about the field that we're in now, I know that completely um, imprinted me. Uh, My mother used to call me the kamikaze friend maker because I knew I would only be there for a little while, but I needed to make friends with everyone. And so um, that life experience being a military brat completely, I think, set me up for my job now. But ended up coming a little full circle in that you were born in Ohio, did a bunch mm-hmm. of traveling, ended back um, in Ohio, and yeah. then uh, made the the choice to attend Bowling Green. I did. Great. So when you... Um, Think about, given your student engagement and involvement, campus leadership, various activities, 
at what point did you realize that like alumni stuff was a thing? Honestly, I didn't realize it until I started working for the admissions office at Bowling Green. So you went through the whole, I mean, you, you were, you were cost conscious or budget conscious in yep. making a choice. You dive in, you get totally, you know, bought into the experience. You love mm-hmm. it. But the whole advancement world was just a little bit of a mystery over there. Yeah. I mean, I won scholarships and I diligently wrote my thank you notes to donors, but at that time totally did not connect advancement with the work. I mean, like with my imprint on my own college career until after I graduated and started working at Bowling Green and started working with alumni administrators on campus and was asked to come, you know, basically apply for a job after being at admissions for three years because of the, you know, organizing events, connecting, like training volunteers. Um, So that was really when, um, you know, the then director, his name was Larry Weiss, said, look, I think you would be great in alumni. And I was like, what? Alumni? I knew who they were, but didn't even think about it in the same breath, really, until 1999. I'm dating myself. And so let me just say, what a miss, like what a missed opportunity. And I feel like this is something that, you know, to this day, I'm sure your peers struggle with of how do we sort of both do effective stewardship and make sure the scholarship recipients have some understanding of what scholarship is and Mm -hmm. that there's a person on the other end of it and that they write a note or send the video. But like, yeah, you're so close to you're you're around the whole thing without like really Mm -hmm. getting. Yeah. And I think, you know, I always go back to you know, again, you have to really think about where students' lives are at the moment. So how do you actually get to them on their level? We think as an administrator, oh, if they just understand that a donor gives this or that alumni do that, but it, we're not in their everyday world. I mean, you could have absolutely told me all of these things when I was a senior or junior in college. I don't know that I was willing to listen. And so we have to really think about a student engagement strategy that starts from day one, right? Private universities do this already because they're actually dependent on so many of those things, but I'm speaking about public land grants right now. And, you know, you have to really, like we're struggling with it. Like, how do we actually connect all those dots so that, you know, you should be, not only are you proud when you graduate, but that there is a sense of giving back already baked into your being. And so that the disconnect is not such a far leap, right? Like, it is a miss because I was right there. I was getting a scholarship, multiple scholarships, and didn't connect the dots for many years. Tell me about the life of an admissions counselor in the late 90s and what it means to actually be the liaison for a bunch of high schools. Like, what is admissions strategy? What did you take away <sighs> from it? Is it basically a sales job? I mean, what like what is it? Well, you know, it's funny because I loved admissions work and from a strategic point of view, it's the same thing. Who are our prospects? Who are our people who are, you know, admissions buys lists? We have lists. Like the the parallels for alumni engagement, fundraising and admissions, there's a very, the, the line is like this big and you are really pitching, right? The great things of a university. And so we would go and every year, here's how many students from these areas applied to Bowling Green. Here's how many that came. Here's how many that stayed. And here's how many we would like to get next year, right? So it's, we're looking at census data. It's all data-driven. Everything that admissions does 
is data-driven. Similarly with fundraising and alumni engagement, data-driven. But I went to 122 schools. I drove all around the state of Ohio, Michigan, and Indiana uh, without a GPS, with a binder of copied maps with notes in my car (laughs) in a crackly cell phone to talk about the wonderful things um, that Bowling Green did. And my goal was always to get them to come to campus because I can come and I feel really good about the work. So I, and I'm, an, and I'm a graduate. So you're not going to get terrible things from Mo when she's yeah. at your door. Um, my goal was come to campus, see it for yourself, feel it. Um, and then you can make a decision. So my goal while was sales in theory, it was selling them to come to campus. Well, maybe maybe your goal was more marketing. I mean, it was more top yeah. of funnel, middle of funnel. You know, we know that a bunch of other admissions counselors are coming and pitching yeah. you on Y, X, Y, Z. I'm going to tell you about Bowling Green. And I'm not asking you to come to Bowling Green, you know, or commit to Bowling Green. I just want you to take that next step yeah. with us. And um, I will say the one thing that, really fascinates me about the enrollment world relative to advancement is just the pace because you've got in some cases 30, 40, 50, 60 years to get it right on the advancement side. Hopefully we can do it a lot faster, but sometimes it takes the whole life, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. you've got, I don't know, nine, 12, 15, 18 months to get it done. And, and, And so does it just feel a different pace or is it not necessarily given that there's the the annual calendar, you know, pace that we're running uh, from. I think it feels different in different. uh, Yeah. I think it feels different because there is always an end game with that class. Like it's it's like building a class immediately with all of the pieces. So there was this sense of, I don't know, completion. Like, I don't know. We get our, we hit our goal for fundraising. We're like, yeah, what's next? But while that same kind of mentality happens for enrollment, you're building a completely different class and you think of it, in a different way. And so the cycle absolutely, from my perspective, I couldn't wait to the fall because you had a season for every step of the enrollment process. Um, and, you know, for our seasons, while we may do fall centers and we call certain times, or we may do direct appeals at a certain time, we're constantly doing visits, we're constantly doing engagement. For enrollment, there's a season. There's an yeah. end game. Yeah. This is putting you on the spot a little bit, but you meet so many students and you're saying the same things over and over, but you got to bring the energy every time as if it's the first time you're saying the thing. Mm -hmm. Do any like individual students stand out or like individual relationships that you've maintained or is it more like, nope, like once they're in, they're just, you know, file them away in the student information system and they go over there. A little bit of both. I mean, there's a couple that I actually walked through their journey with them. Um, it was, it's been really interesting for that. And then I'm lucky because I got to bring in three classes of students and then I got to see them on the end from alumni. So I have a very kind of unique experience. And then from an alumni perspective, the alumni association had a scholarship program that I created. So I recruited those students. I selected those students with alums and I nurtured them for four years. So those students Specifically, I still have relationships with and had until I left in 2014. And even now, like now they're parents and they have kids and it's bizarre. So there are definitely, I, I feel very lucky that I got to see full circle well, um, with a certain group. And some of that has to be supported by 
sort of the onset of social media as you were kind of growing up in, in this part of your career. And I imagine you went through a phase where all of a sudden there's like, you know, kids you hosted at a high school, <laughs> or, you know, friending you or whatever. Yes. Yes. And, you know, from my perspective too, I'm always, I just like to see them succeed and thrive. And if I can help them in any way too, I want to be able to lift that up, but, and are also connect them to others. And so, but social media is beautiful for that. Like I haven't literally seen some of these students in person since I left, but I see them all now, right. Yeah. Through social media. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. And as you made, uh, basically, it sounds like you got drafted to you know, move over to the the alumni side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, what was kind of your initial impression? Because yeah. in a certain sense, you're selling the same mission, the same vision, mm-hmm. a lot of the talking points that would be attractive from an enrollment perspective or why people should support you from an engagement or a philanthropy perspective. But just kind of tell me about like, diving into this side of the world and, and what, what stands out. You're so right, Brent, because there are so many identical parts to it. And, I, and again, I think that's what makes those transferable skills because there's no degree for the work that we do. I mean, you can get a certification, a specialization, um, but stepping into the alumni world, it was really about a couple of things, cultivation of volunteers, organizing ourselves around key priorities for you know, our advancement shop. I started as an assistant director. I mean, I was the, like, I was an entry level alumni person and got so much experience in every realm, right? I did student philanthropy, student engagement from the alumni side. I did marketing. We had a website. I mean, you know, I transitioned from making flyers (laughs) to using publisher to, you know, going live on a website. Um, And really created the scholarship program, worked with our career center, all the time connecting alumni into those spaces because, as you know, you're never going to have enough FTEs to really engage your entire alumni base. And so really connected a group of alums into those facets of the work that we were doing. And then over time, really built great relationships with our development officers. We were an integrated shop, which I count as a blessing um, every single day that we didn't have to like knock down and fight about who owns what donor and why are you doing this? That was just the nature of who we were. Smaller shop, obviously, really were able to integrate right off the bat. I mean, by the time I left Bowling Green, we were the three of us, we called ourselves um, three-headed horse women. We literally, you know, AVP for development, AVP for marketing, AVP for online. Like we just worked the machine and cultivate our teams that way. We were integrated. It was the best of all the worlds. And our alumni felt that, our donors felt that, my board felt that, like they knew there was energy coming out of there. There was strategy. We didn't try to be all the things to all the people. Um, It was just, it it was an amazing time to work there. Launched a campaign, ended a campaign and blew the doors off the campaign. That was an integrated effort that, it's just unbelievable. There are people listening right now, shaking their heads, thinking, I have never heard of such a rosy, aligned, culturally connected organization. Where's the politics? Where's the turf war? Where's the, I mean, that's that's a pretty good review. 
Well, you know, there are always politics, but I will tell you when you have a group of people who put their egos in the box behind them and think about what's best for their university or best for their college, best for their organization, you know, you can get together and problem solve. Like we had politics. I had a number of presidential transitions. I had VP transitions, but the core people never left, never forgot about the core mission of the work. And so we were able to lift up programs and events and appeals in a way it was a united front. And yeah, there's always politics, but we were able, I mean, and these people are now doing great things in other universities that it's, but you have to have the right leadership who almost demands that that's the way you do things. Like it's, you have to have that leadership. Can I ask, were the other two headed horsewomen also alumni or? Uh, no. Um, so one is actually running a shop. Actually, She was not alum. She was our development person. I think she had a master's degree from BG. Um, uh-huh. She is now running the shop at a private college in Ohio. The other one is running a nonprofit in Toledo. Um, uh-huh. You know, so we so all kind of went in different ways. What did, so, you know, I was just wondering, maybe it was just a, I don't know, three alums with a unique level of passion and commitment to the mission. And that just created, you know, better, better than normal vibes. But what you referenced um, both leadership transition or presidential transition, Mm -hmm. but also the importance of leadership setting a standard for alignment and coordination. So how did that, you know, how did those two things foot? Well, a couple of things were, again, a common thread, right? We were launching a campaign. And we, we launched it with two leaders that were very about this approach. I think that helped us actually, because now you're launching campaign, you all kind of bonded in this area of, we wanna be successful, we wanna be intentional, but we have to collaborate. And so we were able to mitigate some of those transitions because we had a campaign driving us forward. And then we had a significant anniversary. So we had some overlays of incredible, umbrella type things that you couldn't let fail. And so those were able to navigate some of those leadership transitions because we were focused on the work and really showing new leadership what's possible, what we're doing, that we're good, that we right. can carry out a goal um, in that way. So all in from your student experience through working as that uh, admissions counselor, getting uh, recruited over to the uh, advancement side or alumni specific Mm -hmm. side, almost a 25 year run at the alma mater. I just have to ask when you think about the one or two just favorite memories, favorite experiences, like the things that give you the most joy from those 25 years, what, what stands out? Well, one in particular is our, uh, Bowling Green as a young school was founded in 1910. So planning the 2010 100-year anniversary took two years to plan. And you want to talk about politics. We wanted to recognize 100 of our alums. And so semantics became really important here. And part of this, we decided, you know, you'd have an application. And we decided it was going to be our prominent 100. However, and this was not me. This was the team of people who worked with me. That event that we had 
uniquely unified our university at a time where there was some strife and turnover. And the way that those alums felt when their name was called and they're walking down this orange carpet and they're getting this art glass piece that was done by an alum. There was every alumni flavor mixed in to that evening. There was a scholarship appeal at the table. That event took so many people to come off. That feeling, I think about that now and I get goosebumps because of the way people felt about Bowling Green State University that moment, that night. And it was a yeoman's job. And a lot of our team, blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> to execute something of this level because it had never been done before. So you want to talk about expectations and managing them. Um, that event, from my perspective, you can't replicate it. Love it. If, if you don't mind me asking then, yeah. um, were you looking for the next chapter in your career more broadly? Mm -hmm. Or did something specific about UConn stand out to you or both? Well, two things. One, again, when you talk about my career, it was pretty much at Bowling Green. I had two years when I wasn't working for Bowling Green from 94 to 96. Ironically, lived in Connecticut, moved to Connecticut, was a nanny, started grad school for two years, and then came back to, um, was recruited to come back to work in the admissions office. But you, if someone who stays, earns all of your degrees, does all of these things, you begin to wonder, are you marketable outside of your area? I'm a known entity in Bowling Green. I've really built up the alumni community at Bowling Green. I'm, I did my admissions work there. Am I marketable? So I dangled my resume, actually, in, I think, 2011. And through a search firm for another university, made it through the process, didn't ultimately get the job. And then I was like, okay, I am marketable, right? Like I can be out somewhere else. People think that I have value. I just didn't get this top job. It was this another- Like, have I learned the business of advancement or have I learned Bowling Green really well? Exactly. And so we're validated on both of those, uh, but didn't make that and said, okay, that's fine. And then thought after 2013, 2014, again, another leadership change. I was like, I think I might need to think about other, really think about other opportunities, like go all in, not just with one, but think about. And the moment that I made that internal decision, the search firm called me about UConn. And I told the guy no twice because I was like, I, I had like a sprained wrist. I just had a baby. It was like, oh, I'm not the best mo. <laughs> I can't present the best mo during this process. And he was like, sorry, I'm calling you back in January. After all these things, I'm going to need your resume. And reading the job description and knowing about UConn, because I had lived in Connecticut for two years, I was like, Mo, you're an idiot. <laughs> and my husband's like, why aren't you applying? Like, it's UConn. Like, there is just, you say UConn and it's this thing, right? So applied for the job through the search firm and... Nine weeks later, I'm announced as the new alumni director and AVP and prepping to move my family across the country in 2014 in June. Sounds like um, the right support or nudge from your husband, but I, I could have seen that conversation going a different way, which is we've got this like amazing community and our family's growing and we mm -hmm. know this place and people know us, but but 
you were aligned in the interest for maybe a new adventure. Yeah. And I think, you know, having a great partner, like my husband, we laugh now because he's like, oh my God, we're moving to, we're moving to Connecticut, right? Like, yes, we are. I've accepted the job. So we have to go, but he's always encouraged that. So we're both each other's champions and it takes a lot of courage to say, we're going to leave the comfort of our home and move our family nine hours east in a community that we don't know. And we don't know one here. We know no one. Right. That will be my next question, which is you go from literally knowing more about the place than just about anyone, everything, you've lived it, you've experienced it, it's local, it's familiar, to knowing almost nothing, which in a certain sense has to be overwhelming, but also maybe kind of refreshing because you're able to kind of come in and and mystery shop with no preconceptions and just learn um, with, you know, perspective from having worked over 20 years at that point in in higher ed. Yeah. And absolutely. But, you know, the search process was pretty intense. And so really we're through the process began to understand some of the challenges that they had, like you got had, right. And so each conversation that we kind of unpacked more where we wanted to go, I kept going back to, oh my gosh, well, yes, a challenge, but they need me. I can, I can do this. Like I can do this. This we can do great things at UConn. Why can't we? So, from not knowing all of the players, but having a very transparent search process, and knowing where we wanted to go, and having the again, you want to talk about leadership. I had a president of a university, a president of a foundation, a board of trustees who really wanted an elevated conversation, um, and so that helps a lot when you come into that position um, to know that you can enact change, you can bring a new vision, you can bring people along. And so change for me is this name of the game. And if we do it with a vision, thoughtfulness, intentionality, with empathy and kindness, you can do almost anything. So I looked at it as a great opportunity. And so one of the things that I would imagine would be a real struggle for a new leader coming into that context is how do you spend your time getting to know a couple hundred thousand new stakeholders, <laughs> right? Or, or the right cross-section of that community. Mm-hmm. You've got board members and other stakeholders and mm-hmm. other administrators to get to know. And then you've got like your team that you need to get to know. Like, how do you balance that without sort of going crazy or just being spread way too thin? Or maybe, well, I started, maybe I started with my team. Lesson. Okay. I started with my team. So I had a one hour or 90 minute conversation with every member on my team. I asked them for their resume, their job, what do they do? Because I needed to understand who the team was, because to your point about all of these, you know, you grow these concentric circles of stakeholders. Um, I needed to know from them, like, are you on board? If we're going to change some things, what would we change? Because I'm but one person. And my team knows a lot of our stakeholders, but I wanted to actually wrap my my arms around the team first. So I spent eight weeks, my first eight weeks. Yes, I met some board members. Yes, I had a few meetings, but I focused internally on my team. I actually reset the table, um, reorged a little bit, got there in June. I think I reorged in August to get some people in some different seats and then started kind of a plan of, 
All right, so now I think I've got everyone situated where they need to be situated so that we can help elevate the conversation. Then let's also get me in the right seats. Who do I need to meet? And so then I worked with my board. I worked with our volunteers. Fortunately, we had a newish president and we were taking her on the road. So there were some baked in opportunities for me to actually reach out and meet a lot of the constituents because of kind of riding the tide of our new engagement plan with our president. But you also walked into a very different organizational structure, <laughs> yeah. uh, the opposite one, let's just call it that, which yep. clearly you knew about going into yep. it and maybe that was part of, you know, you had passion and uh, experience in uh, maybe earlier than typically integrated model. Um, I think, you know, before the sort of merger and acquisition wave of the yes. association and foundation world sort of had kicked off. And so was that a foregone conclusion when you joined or kind of what was the state of affairs? And there had to be some politics around that. Aren't there? I mean, it's the state of Connecticut. There's lots of politics here. Uh, it is absolutely, uh, they wanted better alignment, right? They wanted more integration. And the disillusion was an outcropping of really board not being able to get to their own conclusion, right? And I kept saying through this whole process is, I don't want us to be Baylor. You know, Baylor has two alumni associations and the university has designated one and then others. That was never the intent. It was really to draw people closer, remove dues, and really align with the foundation who, you know, by the way, owns all the data. The university owns the marks. We can have the staffing plan, but let's really think about how do we look at our work differently and have more support for the work that we do. And then on the flip side, really have our development folks leverage opportunities that alumni presents for that. <laughs> but it was just one of those things where dissolving was not the ultimate goal. Yeah. It was really about merging. So tell me about the real life examples of misalignment, like whether it was structural or the lack of alignment more broadly, what were some, how did that manifest in either the alumni experience or confusion for the development partners or the annual fund? Like what are some real life examples of it just not making sense? Well, the then president who was there, Josh Newton, who's at Emory, uh, who you've, who you've had on your show, uh, what he explained to me during my interview process, what clicked for him the Alumni Center here is this beautiful building in the center of the Heartbeat of Campus. The foundation building is right next to it. People never talked to one another ever in these buildings, okay? So one, you didn't even have an acknowledgement of alumni work or an acknowledgement of development work. Like it, there was no acknowledgement, right? Josh asked his team, when is homecoming? Because he came from an organization where Homecoming was big. It was, again, an integrated university effort. And they did not know what he was talking about. And he was like, wait a minute. So you don't work with alumni. Like It was one of those crystallizing moments where, wow, we're not even capitalizing on an incredible experience for our alums and donors because we don't talk to one another. And our buildings are right next to it. We had a, a dues program that looked like it was being cannibalized by annual giving. You know, so you have these very kind of already set up kind of opposing forces because no one is talking to one another about the goals, how we work together, 
it was really kind of disconcerting because again, I grew up in an integrated advancement shop. How did, how did that, how did that feel to alumni and other stakeholders? Like, did they get the disconnect or were they just yes. like, Oh, whatever it's UConn. I mean, some yeah. did. And I, and not all, right. Because again, as a dues paying member, you've got your own little benefits. And so your direct marketing appeal, but we weren't, there was definitely a feeling of disorganization, not kind of one message, one UConn. There were instances like, well, how, why are you calling me for this? And then we didn't know calling was happening. So there was definitely some, I would say, more local confusion from local alums. You know, the farther away you get from your alma mater, if you just hear from them, you're super excited. So I would say the Connecticut base was very confused about who was doing what and why. And again, if we don't know what's happening, then we can't answer the question, then we don't look like we're all one unit. So my sources indicate that you are now an advocate for merger and integration between alumni associations and foundations or the university more broadly. Um, yeah, I think alignment and whether I'm not... A, I would say the nuclear option was what we did dissolving the 501c3. That was a nuclear option that left us no other option. My tell is don't be UConn. <laughs> really, you know, if you can think about the umbrella of the work, it, it is, we're all working toward the same goal, but we each have a role within that. Um, so yes, I'm absolutely in favor of, because you can't do it without each other. And our alumni and donors expect it. We expect us to be one UConn or one whatever university that you're at. But if you're not leveraging the talents and abilities of the entire entity, things get missed. And to your point earlier, it'll continue to take 60 years to move some conversations forward. It just will. I don't think How it has to be that way. At this point, I mean, do you feel like there was a wave, it's happened, this has happened kind of all over at this point. There's a couple of holdouts that maybe are gonna be perpetually yeah. in, a, in a class of their own, fine. Yeah. Or do you feel like we're kind of in the middle of the, like, are you still getting calls from peers or other folks saying, hey, how did you do it? What was the context? What, you know, when did you know it was gonna be the nuclear option, et cetera? Some calls still, but I will say we're getting more of, now we're doing, alumni annual giving. So now you're seeing this alumni annual get it, giving integration um, within the auspices of advancement or foundational work too. So I think the, the pitch for people recognize that you need to be together. Now they're trying to figure out the annual giving alumni engagement piece. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. No, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a big change. And ultimately, I think, you know, when you, when you reference back to what was the Bowling Green enrollment experience? You had a brand, you had your lists, you wanted mm -hmm. to market to those lists across channels. You wanted yeah. to have events in key areas where those prospects or you know, prospective students lived. And then you wanted there to be a seamless invitation to campus and then a seamless next step and a seamless next step all the way to enrollment. Right. It would almost be like, well, I, you know, we don't have a... Uh, enrollment association over here and then like the admissions department over here. like that, I mean that is the that's exactly it. like if somebody had a separate 5013 focused on 
encouraging people to apply and then like actually right. people letting them into school. Like that is how we have just worked on the advancement side. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, budgets are getting tighter. Budgets are getting cut. There are new things that we're trying to deal with. You know, it's just, it doesn't make sense. And you could all be really speaking the same language. What is the number one thing that advancement professionals should know about and learn from enrollment and vice versa? Ooh. Data, know your data, <laughs> really, because I think enrollment does their cadence of what they have to do to, again, get a class to actually commit. And then what the university's obligation is to keep them um, is understanding what your data is telling you and when you can actually pivot with your data. Um, I, I just think about my enrollment times and those cadences were so important. And I think, you know, from fundraising engagement, we have a cadence, we can develop a cadence of engagement and solicitation and, but you can really hone in on it. If you think about it in a seasonal way that I think enrollment does really incredibly well. Love it. Um, Okay. Same question as you, Oh, I do want to know about the, the scope change in your role uh, at the beginning of 2022, uh, what does it mean to be an SVP for stakeholder engagement and chief operating officer at the foundation? And ultimately, I think it's important to know that like in the midst of all of that, your actual employer changed. Is that right? Correct. <laughs> so uh, I was a state employee working for the alumni association, um, which was a little unheard of and unorthodox given after we dissolved, but there were very specific reasons why they, it needed to happen. Um, in 2021, when our former president left and we were asked to kind of come together, uh, both Jake, who's our new CEO and myself, it really kind of expanding on what I think are some of my strengths, again, with organizational development, change management, building teams, culture, was really asked to hone in on some of those things as we begin to talk about campaign as well. Um, and then really having some influences in with our board um, and having a staff member really work on our board engagement plans. And you know, these were things that were tasked from our foundation board of directors who you know, oversees the foundation. And that scope of the work, while still you know, right before then, I was the VP for alumni annual giving and communications. I had really kind of grown that world and was really just taking that step into it. As we evolved into expanding our division into stakeholder engagement, it was really important for me to have all of those rungs underneath one area. Stewardship is under with me, marketing and communications, annual giving, and alumni relations. Those are our major stakeholders from this perspective of engagement, stewardship, involvement, communication. And then we have our senior VP for advancement who just started um, in mid-October. And Having kind of that umbrella, I always call them the umbrellas, right? Of now people are talking together, they're communicating. You see, like, oh, this program wants to happen. This is the way we need to communicate it. This is what we need to do on the back end. We have a unique structure here because when we dissolved the alumni association, we took on foundation events, which are our donor events. That's that was under the alumni engagement room. So very intentional way to do that. Again, so you're having strategy development and all of that was aligned upon me becoming the senior VP 
and COO. Um, and so it's just really about alignment and having top level conversations and making teams talk to one another because, you know, you can get siloed. And let's be honest, COVID did not help <laughs> those integrations the way that I think we probably could have maximized it better. So um, having everyone under one umbrella just makes really good sense. How do you and Jake partner to be most effective? I'm the yin to his yang. Um, so and he will sell you this. Like we have a great relationship. And I think about all of the things that he doesn't think about. He is really in transformational philanthropy. He's also working with our board and cultivating board of directors and working with the president. We have a new president of our university. Um, so he's really thinking about big picture, transformational philanthropy. I think about the operation of the organization. And I ask him, like, what do we need to do for this? Let's talk about long-term strategy. So I am his yin to the yang, and I will give him my feelings. And I'll start like, today's most feelings day. <laughs> Here are the 10 things that we're going to talk about, but here's the next action steps. So I'm his action-oriented executor. Um, and he's really vision, big picture, all of those big things. Now there are some people listening, thinking, how do I get somebody like that? Because um, <laughs> it isn't that common of a role, right? You, it you isn't. About like, okay, I've got a senior VP or a foundation CEO, and then I've got a, a team of, uh, you know, lieutenants, if you will, that are going to run mm -hmm. different, you know, specific lanes, but having that kind of COO integrator type role um, is, is pretty common, uh, it, uh, pretty uncommon, but maybe. I would agree. Yeah. I think it, you know, it, it really is the type of leader, because we're, we're just being asked to do so much more. And, you know, the president and the CEO can't be out, like, can't be out all the time doing all these things and not have someone they trust helping work with the organization and the rest of the senior team and making sure we're hitting the other goals that are really important to our board. It's, it's you know, and kudos to our board for saying we need both a CEO and a president and a COO because that was actually their doing of saying, wow, we're, we're going to do a campaign. We're going to expect Dick to be doing all of these things. We see Mo's skill set in this area. Let's make sure they're working together and helping, like they're getting yay. Like we want to make sure that while he's doing all these things, our organization doesn't alter at all. And that no, we have a community. Look, I mean, it, it's got to be amazing to, you know, for Jake to be able to be gone for three days or four days or five days and and not, you know, just be the bottleneck. And I, I've mm -hmm. felt, you know, I, I've been a bottleneck at times in our journey and, and we've got... Mm -hmm really strong um, leadership team right now where I think we've got some of that yin and yang going. So mm -hmm. I can totally empathize. Um, but it is interesting how uncommon it is where, you know, it's hard to be sort of externally at the president's side doing the transformational work and also being an effective manager to six direct reports that all have their 10 items that, you know, mm -hmm. need to be unlocked and so forth. And, and so I, I am curious from a reporting structure, what does that mean today, sort of like who reports to Jake, who reports to you? So he still has a flat structure. So he still has six direct reports. Um, internally, you know, I run senior staff meetings. I plan all foundation communications. I kind of rally the team together so that we're, you know, we do meetings without him um, every other week because we don't want him to be the bottleneck and we want to be able to say, here's our strategy, yeah. yay or nay, poke holes, throw it down. Um, so right now we're flat, but there's an understanding of the work that I do is bringing people together. Like my goal is bring people together to solve the problems. And then we'll tell them how we're going to solve the problems. 
if we need resources about it, because our CFO is in that conversation, our general counsel, our senior VP. So we really, the Jennifer Sargent factor person that you uh, know and love so well, she sits at that table um, so that we're talking about the right things, solving the right problems and making the right recommendations for him, giving him context. and. So when you think about the problems, like we'll see each other in a year or two, what are the problems you hope to have solved in the next year or two? What's Oof. the big one or two that would just be a, a huge win that when your team listens to this podcast, they're reminded of the importance of that as well? Yeah, I really, I mean, you know, we're just kind of shifting our philosophy on where we're spending our time, right? We've come up with kind of a new regional strategy that we're unveiling. I want to, in a year, like I will say in campaign launch, we're publicly going to launch in about 18 months. During that moment, I want us to have such robust activity that when we launch and we begin to take ourselves around, that there is that there are more people standing up and waving the Yukon flag than ever before. We have a benchmark now of what those numbers look like. I would love for us to surpass that number by two, like by two times the amount of invested, involved Yukon alums and donors, right, fans, any constituent or stakeholder who is raising their hand both to be engaged, to be involved, and to invest. Whatever investment looks like for them, I want that twice in every group, in, in the seven cities that we're doing. Because now we're aligning and we're focusing our resources on that. There's no reason we shouldn't be, but that's the goal that I would love to see. Tell me about just that focus, aligning around seven cities. I feel like there can be this tension between, you know, we need to, we literally need to be all things to everyone, uh, which, which I would say, especially on the alumni side of things, historically has been the case versus you know, development could be the other extreme, which is, you know, there's a hundred people that we really need to build relationships with, cultivate, inspire to do transformational mm -hmm. giving, that will make or break the campaign. So the seven city strategy sounds like it's kind of in between. It is. And we use the data from, you know, our strike zone data. So where are our people, where are our wealthiest people and well, where are they? Are they alums and are they wealthy? Um, in that mid-level, right, of strike zone people. And lo and behold, there are seven major cities that are, have, like, there's a gap, right? There's our top seven and then eight, nine, 10 and everything else. There's a big gap between those. So even looking at the data and our senior VP has bought into this, it's just like, you're right. Like we need to embed our people in the cities. We need to do all of these things again, because it comes down to resources. And the alumni will, we want to be all things, but we're shifting our model, right? So prior to me getting here, we were a volunteer model. When we dissolved and integrated, we became a staff-driven model. We're going to be a staff-driven model for our seven cities and a volunteer model for tier two cities. And not that we won't engage people, but it, it are, it's kind of like, if it's not a hell yeah, we're not doing it. Does it hit our seven cities in Connecticut? If not, let's have a thoughtful conversation about why Love and then who. So you can make these really um, significant shifts with good data, good vision, and you can ask the question why. And if it, everybody says, this is why, Mo, then okay. But it I sounds like having, having the data that supports the filter and the strategy really just allows you to say no to stuff that is non-core, which is one of the biggest issues. Right? Like you want to do all these things 
and you know, we're blessed at UConn to have some pretty nice athletic teams. So we will always figure out how we make sure that things are happening in cities where our, you know, student athletes are going to be, but seven cities is where after they leave, we want to make sure that there's a permanent UConn imprint there. Um, and to me, that data gives us the reason to say no, but also to say yes and say, this is where we start. Very cool. Can I ask, as it relates to having previously been employed by the state, now being at a foundation, does that give you additional flexibility around things like embedding people in regional markets or not necessarily? Well, it was only me. So the foundation was always, you know, so there is the flexibility that we're all at all employees. So, you know, um, it was really just me and another staff member and we both came over um, last year. So it, they, the foundation has always had that flexibility to retool and reshift and rework. Then philosophically, has your perspective on remote and hybrid changed at all? You know, we're now it's it's February of 2023, just as a point of reference. And so kind of where are we on, on that pendulum right now? We're hybrid. Like we talk about this all the time. We're not probably ever coming back to five days a week. I'm asking questions now about our even occupancy in our building. Like, what are we like? Are we committed to two days a week? Um, we do do quarterly in-person all-call meetings. That's four times a year. We're committed to that, building that connection with our teams. Um, but, you know, we're embedding regional people in the regions, still, again, having that connection. Um, we're It's here to stay. I don't think you could... I'm interested to see all these people going back to work full-time and in the office and then the shakeout from that. Um, it's been very interesting here, too, at the university. Uh, but we're here, hybrid is here to stay. And we have fully remote people who literally only come in four times a year. So it, to me, is really about making sure there's connection with the staff. Um, I know you all are fully remote, like you figure out ways to engage and connect and make people feel part of the team. Um, And that's really important to me for culture wise, but hybrid is here to stay. Like I can't even imagine. I love it. There are other people listening right now saying, I can imagine. Uh, can <laughs> like, I can imagine. I, uh, I think you have to have a very strong why. Like, from my perspective, whatever you do, but as it relates to hybrid, fully remote, or whatever is in between, your why has to be so strong and so secure. Again, if it's not a hell yeah, stop, don't, don't mention it because it's not. I love that. It and, and the why cannot be because we have a nine-year lease. Cannot because be. Like not their problem, you know, that, that is not it. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, I think the more, the, the stricter people are gonna be on the, the in-office time, like the better the experience has to be in office, bottom line, it just, it just has Absolutely. to be an amazing experience. And if it's like people hanging out in a cube, feeling not that inspired, like that's not gonna cut it. If you can, really make the most of the in-person advantages, then, then you know, maybe you got a shot, but I'm with you. I think hybrid um, is, is the future. And we consider ourselves, you know, largely remote, but, um, you know, absolutely uh, need to balance that out with in-person experiences for sure. Um, we do. One of the things for us is, is really just, we're, we're seeing, um, I almost feel bad. Like we, we will post a job and I see this inbound flow of advancement professionals from yeah. all over the country saying, I want, I want that job. You know, I like the company, but I love the fact 
that this is a remote option at a time when I'm being told I can't do that. And I almost feel guilty. Yeah, but I think, you know, you have to balance that. For us right now, we still have connections into our academy, right? So we still have to have some in-person engagement with our deans, our faculty. The why is different. Like that, that is right? part of the why, right, for but, sure. But, but for others that don't have directly tied to a unit, that's even our finance department, there are absolute why. Like there are, it can be different. It won't be equal. And that's okay because it's by function. Um, but I wouldn't feel guilty because I think people were able to do these things and raise money and engage alums and still have a presence in this world. So keep doing what you're doing. Love it. Um, I feel like I've seen you at, I don't know, 19 conferences over the last 13 years or something like that, roughly. And you're always surrounded by a group of people and smiling and laughing. And I just feel like you have a thousand friends within this sector um, or at least acquaintances. But when you think about peers who you really respect, like who's on your you know, speed dial, who are you reaching out to when you've got an issue or a question or just need to you know, maybe, maybe uh, vent a little bit as we all do. Yeah, well, you know, I just um, met him, but, you know, Sean at Oregon State University, I love what they're doing. Um, I love every single thing. I think I put in my questionnaire, the chat GPT is on my mind a lot. Um, his person, Mike did, or Mark, I forget. Mark, Koenig, Mark, Koenig, yeah. Mark Koenig did a phenomenal presentation. So I'm looking at people who are really doing not just innovative things, but have actually, they're not just throwing it against the wall and sticking it. What Mark presented was a five-year run of this information. So I'm like, hi, Oregon State. I want to come talk to you. We're like, I want to come and learn more. Um, and folks who are really doing great things in the alumni space, like UCLA continues to blow my socks off with just how much they do, the way they do it. Julie Cena is brilliant in finding... A, I don't even know how she does what she does. Um, and their staff's not that much bigger than us. So I'm always like, how do you do that? Um, so she's one that I really bounce a lot of ideas off and try to get um, information from. And then some of my colleagues who I'm just now on the board of trustees with Case, you know, even though they're not state universities, I'm still looking at Sergio and Fritz and, and other people who are, again, just doing doing things and I don't need to replicate it completely at UConn, but I'm like, what are they, like, what's the one thing I think that we can do? Um, and that's also bringing my colleagues along with me. So not only am I that connector, but, you know, the gen sergeants of the world, I, I want to know who her peers are because if they're doing really thing, great things from an advancement perspective, they got to be doing great things from an engagement, fundraising, stewardship perspective as well. So those are some of the people. And, you know, I know that you interviewed, um, Erica, like I knew Erica before she got to Boston and she's like revolutionizing what they're doing there. So uh, I'm actually going to go visit her, I think in a couple of months, but those are folks who, when we get together or we send an email, you know, what the beauty of the advancement is, I can call anyone. I may not even know them, but I can call them if I see something on their website, I'm like, Hey, I saw this, or this person connected to me everybody is always willing to share. I mean, there is no territorialism yeah. within the global advancement world, which is why there should be no territorialism within advancement shops. Oh, it's amazing. And and uh, even if you don't know them, you know somebody. That does. Quite well who knows them. Yes. Well. That, 
Yes. For sure. Um, which probably is, I don't know, it, it's got to be a little different than on the enrollment side where you're legit competing, right? But you're really not. I mean, yeah. it's so funny because we we would talk about this in admissions. We really were like, you know, it's the Channel Four news team versus Channel <laughs> Seven news team over on enrollment. You know, well, it was really about who had really good swag at their table. Like, who's coming? What's good swag are you giving? But you know, but anybody will share their tips of the trade, and I think that's the beauty of the work that we do is because everyone wants to engage and get their alumni and donors to give and to support the university. So if one thing works for UConn, I'm absolutely going to share it with anybody else and say, I hope it works for you. But here are two other people who can do it better than I can. All right, let's bring it home. Are you hiring? What's new? What, uh, you know, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Obviously, LinkedIn is the answer, but continue. (laughs) LinkedIn is is the answer. We are hiring for a couple of development officers. We're, knock on wood, almost kind of fully staffed, which is a weird feeling. So, um, you know, but turnover happens. But there's a couple of jobs out there on LinkedIn. But find me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect, connect you to people on my team, connect you to others. Um, This is just a great field. I wish everybody loved it as much as I did. Well, you are uh, inspiring and definitely spreading the love for the sector and uh, and the work. And it's just been really fun to kind of, you know, grow up a little bit together. Um, yes. Field over the last, you know, 10 plus years and definitely look forward to uh, future in real life experiences. And and I just have to ask, I, I sent you the photo after AGB, but you were, you were so excited. So who was that? And this was at a conference just a couple of weeks ago in San Antonio, but I just saw Mo like so fired up in this conversation. I had to snap a, a quick pick. So speaking of presidential transition at Bowling Green, um, Carol, Dr. Carol Cartwright was our interim president. She had been the president of Kent State and she was our president for three years. They put her in an interim role for three years between a beloved former president. Just longer and- than most presidents, sir. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, so she, and she just had, she got the way that we did our work. And so she would come into an event, Mo, who are the five people I need to meet? And she would just work the room. She was, you know, she is small, but mighty and she's brilliant. And she totally got our work and let us shine at Bowling Green. And so when I saw, I couldn't believe that she was materializing in front of my face and we had a great conversation. So thank you for snapping that photo because I shared it well, with her. Your, your genuine joy was was uh, on display for sure. That's really, really cool. And um, thank you so much for sharing a bit more about, you know, your journey and perspective on things and really appreciate the, the partnership and the conversation and would encourage everybody listening. If, you know, I always say this, but if you're going to reach out to one person of, of the folks that we've uh, been fortunate to host in the podcast, Mo's got to be very high on that list. So please well, thank take you. Have it, reach, her, reach out to her on LinkedIn, drop a note, mention the podcast. And I hope that uh, I hope that I see you soon, Mo. Oh, you will, because I've already connected you to somebody else. So they're going to come knocking. Onward, onward. Appreciate All that. Right. Everybody with that, uh, I'm going to close today's episode. Brent signing off with Mo Cotton Kelly, who serves as SVP for Stakeholder Engagement and Chief Operating Officer at the Yukon Foundation. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Brent.